Picture this with me. Because of work commitments, you and your family relocate to another country for a time. When you left, you reluctantly left your home church, the church which you, together with 10 other families, helped plant some 10 years ago. You miss the Christian fellowship back in your church. Now, after eight years away, you return back to Singapore. But during the time you have been away, the composition of the church has changed. He has, he has changed, he has transformed from a majority Singaporean ethnic Chinese to a majority multi-international church. The first week back in church, you struggle with sitting through the church service. Gone are the traditions and customs you are used to. And after a number of weeks, you observe some behaviours now accepted in church, which during your time in the leadership of the church, it would have been frowned upon. You start to question. You question whether the changes are biblical. Together with three other founding families who have likewise just returned from overseas, you realise you have similar concerns. Now what are you supposed to do? You want to maintain unity and harmony in the church. Yet there are things happening that affects the way you think church should be run. Now put yourself in the shoes of the newer members of the church. It has been an eventful past eight years for the church. Due to various reasons, more than three quarters of the family that helped planted the church had left. You were new then to the church, but with some others, you stepped up to lead the church. You sought to be faithful to Scripture and to honour Christ. Of course, some changes were made to the ways of doing church. And as a result, for the past few years, the church has seen an increase in the number of multi-internationals becoming members. The composition of the church has changed. However, in the past year, some of the original founding members have returned to the church, and now they have started raising concerns about the church. What are you supposed to do? You want to maintain unity and harmony in the church. You also want to care for these returning members. What you just heard, my friends, is a contemporary retelling of the situation the church in Rome faced when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans in the first century. The Christians of Jewish background were returning to the church in Rome, which at that time comprised mainly of Christians of Gentile background. The church at Rome start facing, started to face conflicts between these two groups of Christians. How do you maintain unity and care for one another? How are you to welcome one another in the church? Well, if you're visiting with us today for the first time, welcome to Grace Baptist Church as we worship at our temporary venue here at the Chapel of the Holy Spirit. And to my beloved family and friends in Christ, a good afternoon and welcome. I'm glad to be back after a break of a number of weeks, and I'm delighted to be serving you all here today by preaching the Word today. We are still in the midst of a series of messages on the one another commands in Scripture. But before we continue, let us pray. Blessed Lord God, 
we have caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that encouraged and supported by your Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the joyful hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. For those of you who do not have a Bible with you, you can borrow one of the pew Bibles for use today. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 7 comes at the end of an extended line of reasoning that Paul makes from the start of Romans chapter 14. And in order for us to understand these few verses rightly, we need to understand both what was happening at the time the letter was written, as well as the context of the whole letter that Paul wrote. Firstly, what did Paul write? If you look in uh, the book of Romans, the letters to the Romans, in the first 11 chapters, Paul basically unpacks what is the gospel. He tells us the good news of Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and how this changes everything for everyone, for both Jews and Gentiles. Paul then spends chapters 12 to 16 telling the church the implications and applications of the gospel, especially as it relates to the community life of the church in Rome. The church was to live out the power of the gospel for the glory of God. And specifically in Romans chapter 14, verse 1 to 15, verse 13, he speaks specifically to the division and conflict caused by the matters of eating meat offered to idols and the celebration of certain Jewish feast days. But you may ask, why is this such a big matter? What happened was this, that in the early AD's 40s to mid-AD 50s under the Roman Empire, Emperor Claudius, ethnic Jews were expelled from Rome. And at the time of Paul's writing to the church in the late AD 50s, the Christians of Jewish background, they were slowly beginning to trickle back to the church in Rome. They were slowly returning after their forced exile. But the church then, by then, had, composition had changed. They had Christians of mainly Gentile backgrounds as the majority. And these returning Jewish Christians found themselves among the minority. And for these Jewish Christians, eating meats offered to idols was a big no-no. And they favoured celebrations of certain feast days. And these issues led to tensions and conflicts between Jewish and Gentile Christians in the Church of Rome. You see, the strong, in this case here, the Gentile Christians, they were despising their weaker brothers who seemed to have weaker conscience with regards to eating of meat. Okay? And the weak Jewish Christians were condemning their stronger brothers for eating meat offered to idols. This was the context that Paul is addressing in the church. But we ask, why did Paul devote more than a chapter to matters related to diet? I mean, isn't this a trivial matter? I mean, many of us in this church, in the congregation here, we are Chinese, right? We tend to eat anything and everything. So why bother about diet? But what was at stake was actually the gospel. Why bother about this? Because a united church 
gives evidence of the power of the gospel to reconcile. And this issue, issue, this matter of eating meats offered to idols, was causing divisions in the church. How then is the church to maintain unity and harmony? How then can they properly portray the gospel to the world? Romans 15 verses 1 to 7 addresses this very matter. In these seven verses, Paul encouraged Christians to submit to one another in harmony so that they will glorify God. Christians are to welcome and love one another, living in harmony with each other because Christ Himself welcomes us and set for us an example. So if you have a Bible, let's look with me at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 1 to 7. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. This is what God's Word says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instructions, that through endurance and through, encourage, through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In verses 1 to 4, Paul tells the church in Rome to please others for their good with the aim of building them up. Pleasing others. I'm sure this brings up experiences for many of you. I mean, you have experiences of man-pleasers in your workplaces, haven't you? I'm sure you have colleagues who seem to always say yes to whatever the bosses want. Okay? As strange as it sounds, as outlandish as it sounds, they always seem a yes to whatever the boss says. Sometimes to the point where this colleague does not even seem to have any personal convictions. Or you may have a friend who always seems to want to please everyone else. Sometimes to the point that he compromises on the truth. He kind of shades the, on the truth, you know, he tells a little bit of white lie here and there, so that he can simply get the approval of others. Is this what Paul means when he says Christians are to please others in the church? Let's read verses 1 to 4 again carefully. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We who are strong. Paul here refers back to Romans 14. The strong here refers to Gentile Christians who understands that the gospel frees them to be able to eat anything. They understand that the gospel liberates them from the obligation to observe certain Jewish feast days. 
And Paul here identifies himself with them. For despite being of Jewish background, Paul has experienced the liberating power of the gospel. The gospel does free us from all these obligations. So does Paul then continue to say, we who are strong can do whatever pleases us because we have freedom in the gospel? No, that's not what Paul writes. Instead, Paul says, the strong do have an obligation. They have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And the word bear here, you know, sometimes we hear the word bear, we think it simply means to tolerate, but it means more than that. It means more than simply to tolerate. It carries this idea of carrying the weak. The strong are to assist, the strong are to support, the strong are to sustain the weak. This means that the Gentile Christians, although they are free in the gospel, they are obligated in the church to help the weak. In this case, they are to forego their rights to eat any meats, especially meats offered to idols. This is so that they will not stumble or tear down the Jewish Christians whose conscience does not allow them to do so. The strong are not to please themselves. And we see Paul restating his call to the strong here in verse 2. And in verse 2, he adds the weak when he tells the church to let each of us please his neighbour. All Christians in the church are to please other Christians in the church and not themselves. They are to make other Christians happy and not to seek after their own selfish gains. But please note, please do note, it is not to make them happy for happy's sake. Look carefully, you are to please them for what? What's the reason you are to please them? What does Paul say at the end of verse 2? You are to please them for their good. And Paul does not leave out, leave what that good is undefined. He says to build them up. What Paul calls for here is pleasing people for their good in order to build them up for building them up. Paul gives the goal for pleasing others. You are to please people so that it is for their good. That is to grow them to Christ-like maturity. Paul tells us that the good we can do to other Christians is to help them grow and to build them up so that they become more and more conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Why should Christians in the church do this? I mean, why should we inconvenience ourselves to give up our rights for the sake of others in the church? Paul goes on to tell us us the motivation for this kind of conduct in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. It is that Christ Himself is our example. For Christ did not please Himself. Jesus Christ set the interests of others before His own. The stories in the gospel show that Christ lived to do the will of the Father, which meant the service of others. Paul then quotes scripture. He cites from Psalm 69 verse 9, and he applies that to Christ. Paul writes, But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. This psalm, this entire psalm, 
was spoken by a godly man of old who found people insulting God and who he himself became the victim of those insults himself. And so as it was with Christ. People insulted God and it was those insults that Christ bore as he suffered for his people. This was what it was like in the life and death of Jesus. And Paul sees Jesus as a pattern and motive for us Christians. Christ's suffering and death is the supreme example of one who forsakes his own pleasures in order to advance the glory and honour of God. I mean, the light of what Jesus has done. Can the strong in Christ's church insist on having their meat and can the weak keep up their condemnation of fellow Christians? No, right? Human beings, we know, we sinfully seek after our own interests and rights at the expense of our fellow Christians. However, Jesus Christ himself set the example of not pleasing himself, but rather to build others up. Paul then goes on like an aside in verse 4. He explains why he can appeal to Scripture this way. In this case, the Old Testament. How he can appeal to the Old Testament in this way. For whatever was written in former days was written for instruction. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What Paul means here is that all that was written in Scripture was written for instruction. It was to teach us. The reason for them being written, if you go down to the end of verse, is that we might have hope. Do you hear that? So we might have this is, what an, this is such an encouragement for those of us who are struggling. And this specifically is Christian hope. The hope that is given to us by what Christ has already done for us to rescue us and to win our salvation. This is the kind of hope that leaves no doubts and sustains us in the darkest times. And the two things that bring about this hope is endurance and encouragement, both of which comes from God. We need to persevere in steadfastness in our Christian life. That's true. And we need the encouragement that the Bible can give. Both will cultivate our Christian hope. You know, my friends, sometimes when I talk about hope, many people think, huh, of course you're a preacher okay, and you're a pastor, you'll be talking about hope. But the reason why, if you hear many of my messages, it carries the topic of Christian hope is because for myself, I struggle very hard in having hope in this life. So when I preach, when I talk about this, I'm not only preaching God's Word and telling you this is what God says to you. Every day when I read this, I'm telling me again, telling myself again, reminding myself of the Gospel that we have hope and we can be certain of this hope. Every time I'm preaching this to myself again, and again. So my friends, knowing this in verses 1 to 4, what does this mean for you and me? How are we to apply this? Ask yourself the following questions. Are you insisting on your rights in some matters in the church at the expense of other Christians? Or do you seek 
to give up your rights and inconvenience yourself so they can build up others to Christ-like maturity. In verses 5 to 7, we see that we praise God by living in harmony with one another. This is what Paul prays for the church at Rome in these verses. Paul prays, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You know, have you heard performances by choirs that simply take your breath away? I have. In particular, I, particularly, I like requiems. Requiems sang by, sung by choir, and I've heard them, and they are simply brilliant. Yes, yes, I know. For those of you who know what requiems are, requiems are actually musical composition for funeral services. Yeah, but I'm morbid that way, okay? But it's amazing to hear how the many different voices under the direction of the choral conductor can sound as one voice as they perform the requiem. So as it is for a church to live in harmony with one another, we are to take our cue from our choral conductor, Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul prays in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Underline and circle the part. In accord with, in accord with Christ Jesus. Paul in his prayer reminds us that God is a God of endurance and encouragement. And this leads immediately to verse 4. Our, pers- our ability to persevere and endure comes from God. The Scripture gives us encouragement because the God of the Scriptures is a God that encourages us. And God grants you, me, the church in Rome, to live in such harmony with one another. I mean, in Singapore, when we hear the word harmony, we think of things like racial harmony, so on and so forth, and we think absence of conflict. But this is more than that. Because when Paul prays that God enable Christians in the church to live in harmony, it can be translated in the New, Amer- as in the New American Standard Bible as having a same mind as one another. The Christians in the church at Rome, they are to have the same mind as one another in accord with Christ Jesus. They, have, they are to have the same mind with one another, which is the same frame of thinking, the same attitude as Jesus Christ. And what is this way of thinking and attitude? Remember, this follows verses 1 to 4. So they are to follow the example of Jesus Christ, who gave us the example of not pleasing Himself, but rather to build others up. And when the church does this, when each of us seeks the good of others rather than our own good, we would together with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christians in the church follow Jesus Christ's example and seek the good of others to build them up, there will be unity and harmony in the church. And then together with one unified voice, as if with the choir, we will praise God. Can you imagine this with me? Imagine if everyone in Grace Baptist Church 
sought the good of others and not their own selfish gains. Can you imagine if everyone here in this church gave up their rights in order to help others grow? Imagine if everyone at church is united as one family rather than criticizing one another or gossiping despite our differences. This will bring about such a unity. And this unity will picture to the world the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to form a supernatural oneness. And this will glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul ends by urging the church at Rome to therefore welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. The church is to welcome and accept one another both the strong and the weak, because Christ Himself first accepted and welcomed us. Romans 5.8 tells us that, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you hear this? And, and take note of this, brothers and sisters. It wasn't that we deserve it or earn it. As undeserving sinners, God sent Jesus Christ to die for us for the forgiveness of our sins. God in Christ Jesus first welcomed and accepted us into His family so we too can welcome and accept one another. I know we human beings sinfully seek after our own interests and rights and we reject fellow Christians who do not serve our interests. However, Jesus Christ Himself has welcomed and accepted us so we should be able to welcome and accept one another. And when we do this, we do this for the praise and glory of God. As Bible teacher Leon Morris writes, God's glory was promoted when Christ received us sinners and is further advanced when we who are by nature sinners and wrapped up in our own concerns instead receive our brothers and sisters in Christ with warmth and love. So what? What now? Christians are to welcome and love one another, living in harmony with each other because Christ Himself welcomes us and set for us an example. How are we to live this out? Firstly, we are to welcome and accept other Christians as Christ accepts us. If we are Christians, we have placed our trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our sins have been forgiven and Christ Himself accepts us. We are now joined as one family with God as our Father. This is truth. This is what happens at a point of our conversion. So we are really one family. We are to welcome and accept other Christians, other members of this big family. As a church, as Grace Baptist Church, do we welcome and accept other Christians when you come to our church? Or do, we like, or do we let differences divide us? Imagine if someone now walks in our church. Do we let their status, their ethnicity, their race, their culture, or our definition of what is the right way of looking and behaving prevent us from welcoming and accepting others? If a Christian who is different from the norm of Grace Baptist Church, of course we have a norm. Every church we kind of have a norm. So if someone who is different from the norm of Grace Baptist Church walks in the door right now, 
would we welcome and accept him or her? Or do we need to meet a certain code of conduct or come from certain pedigree before we are welcome? Remember, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Remember the gospel and welcome and accept other Christians. We are all recipients of the amazing grace of God in the gospel. Secondly, be prepared to give up your rights in order to prepare to give up your rights in order to build up other Christians. I want to be careful here. I'm not talking, and Paul is not talking, of compromising biblical truths. I'm not asking that we be wishy-washy with regards to our scriptural convictions. Okay? Philip Melaton, Martin Luther's advisor in the Reformation, is the one who first said this: is in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. What I'm saying here is in the essentials, especially gospel issues, we should be unwavering and stand, we should stand firm. What I'm saying is in the non-essentials, where as Christians we have liberty in the gospel, where we must be prepared to give up our rights in order to build up other Christians. There are areas where good Christians, on both, there are good Christians who differ on how to, to do, uh, how, how, the issue, uh, how this matter should be treated. So, for example, I believe Scripture prohibits drunkenness. I also think that Scripture gives Christians the liberty to drink some alcohol in moderation within limits. And there are Christians on both sides of the fences for this. But what does this text tell us? But we should be prepared to give up drinking if it stumbles another Christian in the church. Our goal should always be for the good of one another, to build one another up in the faith. Are there areas where you have Christian liberty, but where you may want to give up or forego so that others might be built up? And why do we do this? Because this is the very example of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave us the example of not pleasing himself, but rather to build others up. Jesus Christ himself sets for us the example and motivation. But the name, the Christ, is not merely a name, but Jesus' title as God's anointed king from the line of David. Yet, my friends, my brothers and sisters, yet even this king, the strongest of the strong, did not please himself, but bore the infirmities of the weak. His unselfishness and humility can be seen at every point in his coming, in his life, and even in his sacrificial death. In birth, he laid aside his majesty at the Father's side to become poor in order to make others rich. In life and ministry, he came among people as one who serves. We can hear Paul's words here echoing Jesus' own. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Yet even this great one came as a servant and poured himself out in life and death for others. If even our King did not please himself, then clearly neither should we wise people. Christians are to submit to one another in harmony so that we will glorify God. 
we are to welcome and love one another, living in harmony with each other, because Christ Himself, our King, welcomes us and set for us an example. Before I end in prayer, we do have some time. Let's spend the next three to five minutes in prayer as a church community to pray God's Word into one another's life. God's Word, Scripture, is inspired by the, the Holy Spirit. And as we pray, we pray for the Holy Spirit to take God's Word to apply it into one another's life. So please use the following two questions as a guide for your prayers. Have you ever demanded your own rights for your own pleasure at the expense of other Christians? Pray and confess that to God, asking for His forgiveness. Also pray for our church that we will welcome and love one another as God in Jesus Christ welcomes and loves us. Take, take the next three to five minutes to pray, either by yourself or with another friend. us close together in prayer. Almighty God, through Jesus you say to us that whoever wishes to be first must become the least and the servant of all. We leave this place knowing that your victory is won through the weakness and power of the cross. We pray that your church may be one. Teach us to accept humbly that this unity is a gift of your spirit and through this gift change and transform us and make us more like your son Jesus Christ. Amen.